My name is Dwayne Default, and welcome to Selling SaaS, a podcast that's built to get you the best advice from the top experts for go-to-market strategies, sales, and product-led growth. Now let's get into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Selling SaaS podcast. And today, I'd love to welcome the esteemed Michelle Benfer from HubSpot. And so you've been with HubSpot for quite a while. But, you know, Michelle, why don't you kind of take myself and the listeners through a little bit of your background and kind of, you know, how you got to HubSpot and what's been your, your progression in your sales career and different things you've done in between? Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks, Dwayne. I'm excited to be here and chat with you today. Yeah, so I've been at HubSpot for just over five years now. I'm SVP of sales for the Americas. And I started out overseeing the North America Small Business Sales Organization, which is actually the largest org in, you know, globally at segment globally at HubSpot. And then, you know, moved up to oversee all of North America and then all of the Americas from there. So I've had a great run. The company has just done phenomenally. I think when I started at HubSpot, we were under half a billion in revenue. We're over $2 billion now as of our last earnings call. So the last five years have been a pretty stellar run, which has been great. And prior to my time at HubSpot, I was at a company called Log Me In. You might remember some of the products they had, like GoToMeeting, Joy.me, before the days of the Zoom video conference. You can just give someone a, a log me in code and then go to a browser and then that whole thing, yeah. Yeah, you could log into remote computers and all of that. We had a great product rescue as well for ID, IT help desks. Mm-hmm. But I was there for just under five years. And prior to that, I started out in media. So my early career was working for Vogue magazine is where I got my start. I worked for a lot of the women's fashion magazines in New York City and I sold to... Companies like Louis Vuitton and Gucci and Richemont Group, which have Cartier and Van Cleef and Arpel. So I was really more in this luxury enterprise fashion jewelry space and eventually transitioned over to SaaS. So what made this the switch to SaaS? Like what made you want to get into tech? Yeah. So I started in, I mean, Vogue at the time when I was there, which was the early 2000s, was the behemoth of magazines. You know, every... I think when I was there in 2004 or so, 750 pages of was the September issue, which they're famous for. I mean, it was the number one revenue generating magazine. I, I think that, you know, certainly at the time. But then print media started to wane. Obviously, online digital advertising started to really pick up. And I realized that I had to kind of progress where the market was going. And so I eventually transitioned over to AOL, which was my first stint in, at a tech company. Yes, it was AOL, like the the dial-up, but it was advertising <laughs> sales. I was in advertising sales for them. And I lived in the Boston market you know, at the time. And as opportunities were coming my way to continue to oversee large teams, at the time I was overseeing like 50 people at AOL, they were in pretty traditional media and Boston was rich in SaaS and there were some really hot companies. And so I made the move over there and I particularly loved overseeing large teams and real metrics driven ability to lead. So yeah, that's why I made the switch. I remember my first time being in tech and it was actually e-commerce side, not so much like SaaS, but it was like my first experience looking at it through like the metrics, like you were saying, and, and being able to like, see the business from a different angle and see like, if I, if I do this thing over here, then you see these metrics and data points move 
on this side too. So it was, it was the first time really kind of getting to see the back end rather than like being door to door, being outside sales. You never really got that. It was just your numbers and what you're responsible for and, you know, making sure that you have an extra pair of shoes, like those things. And, and so I, I, I realized that I had a, a passion for the numbers and the data side of sales that I'd never really gotten shown before. And so that's, uh, I, I remember that being like a really big trigger for me. And I'm like, Ooh, this is fun. I used to call it being Oz behind the curtains, I'm like turn the dials and the knobs and stuff. So with AOL, you know, and then going to log me in, like what's, because most of your background, you've been in some form of sales leadership, right? You know, AOL, you're in the you know, bottom working your way up and then getting into kind of the HubSpot stuff. Like you came in as a VP of sales and SMB, you know, in America's with HubSpot specifically, you know, the last five or six years, they've made quite a run at CRM. Right. Cause they, you know, everyone knows they started as marketing. And I think the CEO a couple of years ago was like, we're going to, you know, we're going to be the best CRM in the marketplace. Like, what's been being on the sales side of things? Like, what's been like the experience over the last four or five years being along for that ride as like as HubSpot's trying to grow their marketplace as the top CRM, but then also going through the transition internally of having to do the same thing? Like, was there, things, I don't know, you can't share a lot, right? Cause, or some things cause publicly traded companies. So I get it, but it's like, was there like a transition in like a leadership mindset? Was there like a lot of change management that happened making the transition in, in like going from selling marketing personas to now having to, you know, all of a sudden be able to sell the sales personas. Like, was there a big change? Like interested to kind of hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting when I when I came to HubSpot, I still remember my my first interview was with Brian Halligan, who is one of the co-founders, and he was the CEO at the time. And I was coming from LogMeIn, who was a portfolio company. We had just merged, you know, LogMeIn with the GoToMeeting brands, GoToAssist, GoToMeeting. And the strategy at LogMeIn had been one of M&A. And so we're constantly acquiring and merging with new cultures, new billing systems, new tech stack, new processes. And, and so I had been used to adding products into the product suite and having to learn that persona, learn how to sell them. And there was clunkiness within it as a portfolio company. And you see other large companies, you know, kind of follow suit in this way as well. I came to HubSpot, my first interview with Brian Halligan, the CEO, he whiteboarded for me kind of what does the future of HubSpot look like? And he had the CRM, the free CRM underneath all the products and where it was eventually going. And I remember thinking like, this guy is crazy. You know, you think like we're going to compete with Salesforce? Like they have the market. I don't know any sales organization that's not using Salesforce. Like why do they want to compete? You know, the David and Goliath in that way. And as he described it to me, and this is something that I fell in love with HubSpot then, and, and I still, this is what inspires me today is the number of times we talked about the customer and the customer experience and what we can bring to the customer was really that full customer journey and the ability for go-to-market leadership and teams and companies to have that full view of who their prospects and who their customers are and building around that as opposed to having it be an M&A revenue collection strategy. And there's, there's also a commitment to, you know, an elegant product. And, you know, they bring up, you know, the Apple products quite a bit, you know, internally here at HubSpot. 
and then also best in class customer success. So seeing that vision, you know, the vision is something you really want to grab onto and say, you know what, this might be a bumpy ride. You know, we're going to have to figure this out along the way, but I'm along for it. And to answer your question, like it must have been a lot of change management and selling to new personas and figuring all that out. Like, what I think is actually pretty interesting is, especially overseeing large teams at scale, you there naturally will be some innovators and entrepreneurs internally within your sales organization. And they're the ones that say, raise their hand and say, I want to be on the sales pilot. I want to go in the forefront of selling to a group we haven't sold to before and learn from it and get access to the executive team. And, and you know, so I've seen the iterations of those being, you know, not fans of expanding our freemium PLG motion, those feeling like we don't have the right product readiness in order to get into the sales market. And you have the pioneers. And so it's been really fun to allow the pioneers to really push us into those new spaces and stratospheres. And we're still learning today, but, but I think we've done a pretty good job. You know, the last five years have been quite a run at HubSpot. Yeah. So what you're saying, or what I'm hearing is that to move large teams, large organizations into different initiatives, it's, it's almost, you have to have those kind of internal pioneers, like, cause to come from like a management perspective, like if you're top down saying, Hey, this is the direction we're going to go. It's, it's hard to turn that oil tanker. But if you've got those internal pioneers, those early adopters to kind of help move the initiative forward, they're out there kind of proving it and they're able to like show their peers that that can be done. Like, is that, is that kind of what you're talking about with the pioneers? Exactly. Yeah. Like, like we had two programs we ran last year. One was a lighthouse program and the other one was the sales explorers. And, you know, the the Lighthouse program was really how do we like take down some really strong logos in the CRM space and these companies that we know will be kind of a beacon of light that other companies see them. And, and yeah, this is a type of program a lot of companies have, you know, it's not, you know, super new. The other one is this, it, we called it Sales Explorers, Upmarket Explorers. And it was a team that was going into the unknown. You know, how do we test out new motions that we haven't done before? And we're going to fail. We're going to mess up. We're going to learn. And you have, but you have to run those experiments in order to push yourself into an area you haven't been in before. And some of them work and some of them don't, but it's the commitment to the experimentation that really helps, you know, sales motions adopt, uh, you know, adapt, evolve, grow, and innovate. I feel like I know the answer to this question, but what do you think keeps companies from doing that experimenting? I think there's just such a speed to to hitting the targets and the revenue numbers. And I, I would I would say, especially these last few years with the digital transformation that we saw, people, depending on the company, like they couldn't keep up with demand. And so you're almost putting bodies to make sure that you're converting and keeping up with demand as, as quickly as possible. I'd also say that, you know, some companies, they don't have a long enough roadmap for strategy. You know, the strategy might be what are we doing this year, but not what do we want to build for, you know, in 2024, 2025? And how do we learn from that this year? And so, yeah, I think just keeping an eye out of where you want to go, you know, start your experiment probably a good year ahead of time. 
that actually answers my second question on that one, kind of a follow-up when you're talking about couldn't keep up with demand. Like, is that because they couldn't iterate fast enough? Are they not allowing experiments to run in a, in a long enough period of time to have an effective learning learning cycle in that? Like when you say that time frame and all that, is it just because they're not delivering on the experiments fast enough to keep up? Like where, what were you meaning by that? Yeah, I, I guess if you take the digital transformation, for example, which, you know, if, 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 um, I'm using language as though everyone is is using the same vernacular, but basically the the run on software purchases for companies, you know, during the COVID times. But business just was growing so quickly that you just you want it, the best thing you can do in the moment is hire the bodies in order to ensure that you can convert as much of that demand as possible. But you have to have that vision on the patience of I'm I still need to build for the next few years and what do we need to do today to do that? And, you know, for example, right now, our reps sell both new and expansion business. And at at our size at HubSpot, you tend to see those roles broken out. You might have the hunting new business team. You might have an account management, you know, expansion team. You might have at this point moved into vertical, um, whether it's for, you know, for industry verticals and or product specialists. So you're actually like selling specific products. Like we we still haven't done that. And part of that is because the commitment to the customer. And we still want to keep, you know, the number of handoffs as minimal as possible. But we're testing, do we split those teams up, the new and the expansion teams? And we might decide it's worth it, it's not worth it. And, you know, how do we make a call on disrupting our current sales structure? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean... Because I've worked with and inside of organizations where you have the specialists and you can get really deep on specific things. But as soon as someone asks about another thing, they're like, yeah, I'm not sure. Let me bring someone in. And then it elongates the whole sales cycle in in like an enterprise motion. I think that works because even even in their organization, they have their specialists. They have their other stakeholder for that specific department, which is important for salespeople to recognize. But in SMB and mid-market, I don't know. I mean, you guys have way more data and exposures than I do personally. But it's it. I think one of the things that's made HubSpot unique, both as a, a user and you know, knowing somewhat of how the inside operation works, I think it's that single point of contact that really helps bring the relationship into it. Like, what do reps struggle with when it comes to that? Is it like the rep, like the account executive that's been with HubSpot for a couple of years? Is it? the sheer breadth of capabilities that HubSpot is, which causes a huge discovery process? Is it like just getting a handle on all the things? Like, where do you see that holistic rep, we can call it, struggle the most? Yeah. So I think, you know, if you take a typical rep that we onboard, say they can't come into our mid-market team, so they probably have, you know, three, four, five years experience in sales at, at a minimum. You're coming on board, you're trying to understand our systems at the company, right? How do I actually use the HubSpot CRM if I haven't been using it before? How do I, you know, source my prospect list? How do I do outreach? You know, then you're learning our product suite. So you have marketing, you have sales, you have service, you have our CMS, you have payments, you have platform. Then you have, what are the integrations? We have an ecosystem of a thousand integrations. What are the ones you should, you know, be savvy on? How do you work with your SE? What does your SE cover? You know, what do you cover? 
Um, and then it's also understanding the personas. You know, most of the leads that come through for HubSpot is not going to be the head of sales doing an evaluation. It's going to be someone in sales operations who's probably a director. Like, how do you, who are the personas? How do you work with them? You have a technical buyer, you have an administrative buyer, you have the business buyer, you have the financial buyer, you have the security buyer. And so pulling all that stuff in, a rep who comes on board needs to be super bright, savvy, and they have to know how to prioritize and sequence, you know, how they're going to attack their day and have a constant commitment to not only winning, but also learning. So I, I have a ton of empathy for the reps. It's not an easy job. And they have me knocking on their door asking for pipeline and deals and when are you going to close them? But that's the challenge. I think it's the you know, and then it's also the use cases. You know, you're selling into real estate, you're selling into manufacturing, you're selling into, you know, tech and SaaS companies. So there's quite a bit to grok there. There's a lot. Like, I just, I love tech, I love sales, and I'm always trying to think of like, how would this be able to get sold or and all that stuff? And it's like, you know, I've, I'm a HubSpot partner. And so I see like the potential for overwhelm when it comes to a sales conversation. And how it's like, a, it's a real weird question, more of a statement too, but I feel like products like HubSpot are hard to sell when you're a rep that relies on scripts and direct points of presentation. It's like, you have to be ultra curious with something like, like you can't come in and like assume the value based on a persona or or like a, a description that you got in from like the marketing form it's like you you have to learn like what they need because you have to dial in what you're going to focus on like very or you can just get lost in in all the different things like and and i feel like correct me if i'm wrong i feel like that is like kind of the heart of hubspot's like sales mindset because of the holistic buying process and like everything you guys do but like that's one thing that I feel like a lot of companies can adopt more of it, just keeping that curiosity. But yeah, I feel like there's so many different ways to take that conversation, but. Yeah, I mean, we interview for that. So, you know, we have certain attributes that we interview for and intellectual curiosity is one of them. Coachability, you know, resilience, you know, commitment to winning. And so we try to go pretty deep on those. And, and we, sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't, but the intellectual curiosity, I think what, you know, one of the questions that we ask pretty consistently is like, tell me something that you learned recently and walk me through how you learned it and why did you learn it and what was it? Because we want to understand the, someone's process of figuring things out and learning something new. And part of what they need to have and learn and hone is business acumen. And so it's not just how do I sell this product and how do I how do I present on a call better and give a better demo? It's also how do I understand the inner workings of this company with whom I'm working and how can we help them or not help them and understand, you know, what is, you know, where might this make sense to help your business grow better? So it's the business acumen that you have to have an interest in. Oh, gosh, that's such a good topic. I I feel like that's something that's lacking in a lot of candidates, a lot of younger, young, quote unquote, younger people where they're, you know, they're in their early twenties and they just don't, it, they struggle to have an interest in the business side of things, but it's like, that's how you sell into mid-market and enterprise, even some SMB where if you're, if you're not interested in the inner workings of their business, then you're not going to get 
those nuggets, those tidbits to tie the value that, uh, that a product brings to their business. But you said something there that I think is really interesting, how, how it's not going to work for them. And I firmly believe in the disqualification process. Like how do reps do that effectively? Like you, you, you know, you manage large teams and I don't know if you listen to calls still directly, but it's like, how do reps effectively disqualify prospects, opportunities without kind of ruining that relationship? Is there an effective way to do that? Yeah. I mean, I think we try to really approach the customer with empathy. And so, I mean, if someone wants to buy HubSpot, they can certainly go and buy it. You know, we don't prevent them, but what we don't want to do, and we actually have our comp plan set up so that reps have skin in the game to, to sell the right product to the prospect is what we don't want is for someone to buy something and, and feel like they were oversold. And we hear about it. I get LinkedIn, you know, love notes from someone who feels <laughs> like they were oversold or, yeah. you know, or we see it, we'd see it in retention numbers or renewal numbers, downgrades from an enterprise edition to a pro edition. And so reps get dinged on that. They, they're not able to promote if they don't have a healthy retention numbers, you know, kind of in arrears. So, you know, the manner in which they do that is just making sure they're selling the right product. People can always grow into a product, but the downgrade is going to ding HubSpot. We're going to ding the rep. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Selling SaaS Podcast. And if you got value from today, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. 